Hey guys, welcome to episode 138 of The True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. We hope you're all doing well. But before we get started, I just want to share this message. The next episode we release will be the listener stories episode. Now, I know that that's kind of like a trend right now because I see a lot of podcasts doing it. But this is something that we've been doing for five years. So it's not a tradition that I want to stop. And I love it because I get to talk to listeners on a different level. So it's always really cool. But this is your last chance to get your stories in. And it's going to be really hard to top the past listener stories episode because we've always gotten like intensely crazy ones. And they've always been really scary. I mean, they really have been. And also, you just like this time of year because you just like to scare me. You put on all these movies that, like, scare the <laughs> shit out of me. And then I can't go to bed at night. But, yeah, I mean, you know what? It is uh, it is fun, but it's scary. Yeah, we are doing the 31 Days of Halloween Challenge where we watch a scary movie every night. And John's not necessarily a big scary movie guy, especially at nighttime. So I'm easing him into some of... The really, really good ones. And we actually had a poll on Patreon of whether or not they wanted us to like do recaps of the episode. I mean, movies we've watched. So it was overwhelmingly a yes. So I think Patreon is going to see that in the month of October. We'll kind of recap movies 1 through 15 and then do 16 through 31 on a different episode. Sounds good. It'll just re-terrify you. I'm not ready for that. I'm I, I'm glad we're taking some time to get me acclimated to this because I'm just not comfortable with this. I'm scared of this stuff. You know, it's really, you know what the, the thing is, right? I'm not good on any front. I have to worry about the real monsters out there and the fake ones now. And that's horrifying. It's so funny you say that because it's a fantastic segue into this episode. Really? Yep. Okay, so before I say it. You can send all of your scary stories to truecrimecouple at gmail.com. And it could be anything, supernatural or just something scary, unnerving. And I can't wait to read them all. Tonight's the night. I have my pumpkin beer ready and I'm going to terrify myself because John doesn't does have work tomorrow and I don't. So that's how I'm going to stay up late. Lucky you. <laughs> okay. Are you ready to hear something crazy? Always. The story I have for you today will be, just as they always are, hard to get through, especially because it involves a child. Just around Halloween in 1992, a vicious crime would shock the blue-collar town of Oil City, Pennsylvania, changing it forever. In fact, the town would put a ban on nighttime trick-or-treating for 16 years after the case I'm about to tell you. And even now, the time is restricted to not go past 8 p.m., Halloween is a time of great excitement for children. It's electric in the air. Kids playing innocent pranks, mischief nights, talking about what they're going to dress up as, and of course, the promise of mounds and mounds of candy after trick-or-treating. But lurking beneath all that fun is a terrifying truth, something the good people of Oil City had to learn the hard way, that monsters are real, and sometimes they're the ones you least expect. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Oil City is located in the northwestern corner of Pennsylvania and sits at the mouth of the Allegheny River 
The town was founded by workers of nearby oil fields in 1862. Oil City soon became an integral part of Pennsylvania being granted the title of the steelmaking capital of the world. For quite some time, if someone needed work, they knew that Oil City was the place they could go to find it. But much like the rest of the states that contributed to steel production, like Illinois, Ohio, Pennsylvania, especially Oil City, was hard hit by the steel crisis of the 1970s and 80s. Cities and towns that once stood as shining examples of American industry and power were nothing but the ghosts of their former glory, as unemployment, poverty, and crime increased, as the cities themselves began to rust. Oil City saw a large population decrease as people moved to find work. But those who couldn't afford to leave, or knew nothing but their city, chose to stay. According to the census records, about 79% of people left through the 1970s and 80s. Most businesses were boarded up, and abandoned gas stations were at the corners of many streets. But the people of Western PA are resilient. They worked hard, and they made the best of what they had. Because many homes and businesses were abandoned, Oil City became known as the place you would settle if you needed affordable living but didn't mind a commute because work was hard to come by. But that's not to say there wasn't a lack of charm and elegance to the city. Although it's not what it once was, Oil City has gorgeous Victorian homes that the city and its residents worked hard to maintain and put on the historic registry in hopes that their charm would potentially entice passerbys to stop and check out the center of town and all that it has to offer. And those who chose to stay grew close with one another. Everyone knew everyone, and they looked out for each other, your quintessential tight-knit community. And that was how it was in the part of town that 11-year-old Shauna Howe lived in. It was known as the poorer section of town, the South Side. But the people were honest, and they took care of each other, which is why when it came time for the kids walking to and from school, the parents of the neighborhood usually let the children walk alone something that was always kind of a necessity because to live in that community meant that you were really hardworking and most likely it was a one-parent household or if even if it was a two-parent household, both of the parents were working. Yeah, I think that's just, you know, part of the reality nowadays as well is like both parents have to work to support the family. It's uh, And sometimes kids just have to walk home. Yeah, you just got to walk home. I know I did when I, I was a kid. I did too. Yeah. I mean, it was a little different for you walking home because you lived in Queens, but... Yeah, but it was... You know what, though? It was fun, though. And and it was kind of... I mean, even though I'm talking about a big city, I mean, it was it's kind of... It was the same feel. Everybody knew one another in the neighborhood for the most part. So, you know, walking home wasn't that big of a deal, you know? Yeah, and it was the same for me, too, because, like, there was a whole bunch of kids in the neighborhood. So we all kind of... Everyone on my street would walk together home as a group. Yeah. I think only when I got to middle school, it was dangerous, in my opinion, because you had to take... You know, every kid had a Metro card and you had to actually get on a bus to go to middle school. That is intense. Yeah. So you would take, you know, city transportation every day on the way in and on the way out. We just so. had to worry about bears coming out of the woods. No, we didn't have that problem. Yeah. We just had like everything else to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> well, Shauna grew up in the 400 block of West First Street. She lived with her mother, Lucy Brown, her stepfather, John Brown, and three siblings. Shauna had a 12-year-old brother and two younger sisters. Her parents divorced when she was young, 
and when they separated, her father made the choice to not move far away because he wanted to see his children. And he stuck to his promise. Shauna and her three siblings split their time evenly between their mother and father, something of course made easier by his close proximity. And for the most part, everyone was mature about things, and they got along for the sake of the children. Shauna was a beautiful young girl. She had shoulder-length brown hair, small fringe cut just below her eyebrows, and beautiful blue eyes. She was described by her mother as being outgoing and having a lot of friends from school, church, and her Girl Scouts troop. On Tuesday, October 27, 1992, Shauna was really excited to see and hang out with some of those friends, especially because she would be able to wear her Halloween costume. The plan was that Shauna was going to go to school, which was Hassan Heights Elementary School, and then later in the day she was going to go to a Halloween party with her Girl Scout troop at the local nursing home. The Girl Scouts had been trying a new program that year where the girls would go down to like the nursing home and they would put on entertainment for the people that were staying at the home. I mean, that's cute. No, I mean, it, it, yeah. was, it was cute. And yeah. each girl kind of like adopted a grandparent. That's funny. So they would, you know, through the Girl Scouts trying to promote like togetherness in the, in, in the community. So it was kind of like they would talk to this grandparent and learn about their life, their history, and what they did. And that was, you know, them earning a badge. So what you're saying is appreciate the elderly. Yes. Yeah, we should. We should and do that. We should. And it was, it, it was something that she really enjoyed doing. So that year, Shauna told her mother that she wanted to put together her own costume, something she was relieved about because money was tight in the house and Halloween costumes could get expensive for four children. She was going to be a gymnast. And Lucy said that her daughter did a great job. She put the costume together on her own and picked a turquoise gymnast bodysuit like leotard that was uh, turquoise but had black stripes, like thin black stripes. She wore tights, sneakers, and satin gloves that went up to her elbows. After Shauna returned home from school that day, she put on her Halloween costume and showed her mother, who was getting ready to go to work. And she just told her like how good she looked, how she looked really cute, like a real gymnast. Aww. Again, because of the trust and closeness of the community, Lucy did not have any concern about Shauna walking from her house to a friend's house that was about half a mile away. It was a walk she had done hundreds of times. She always knew there would be a lot of kids playing outside at that time, so she assumed that Shauna would be safe. An oil city in 1992 was one of those, all of the kids stayed outside until the streetlights came on, and then that's when you knew you'd go home. So it was kind of like you knew your child would be safe because there's so many people surrounding them. So the plan was for Shauna to walk to her friend's house and her mother, her friend's mother, was going to then drive them to the nursing home. Earlier in the year, Lucy had set up an arrangement with one of the mothers of Shauna's friends that she would drive Shauna home if the girls ever had an activity that went into the night. Jennifer, Shauna's friend Linda's mother, said it was never a bother because they lived so close to each other and everything was planned out, which worked out for Shauna's mother because she had a shift that night at the pizza place that she worked at that was like eight miles away, which is like a 20-minute drive away. Okay, guys, let's get back to the episode. 
So at 4.30 p.m., Shauna came home and got into her costume. Because it was too cold for just a leotard, she was wearing shorts over them. So I guess that was the, um, like, the agreement that her and her mother came to. Remember when you would have, like, the coolest Halloween costume and you'd be so excited to wear it, but then your parents would make you put, like, a jacket over it and you'd get so mad. I have to be honest with you. I never had that happen. Really? Yeah, but the, this... Wow, you're a lucky child. No. Oh, no, I'm not. There's more to this than that. Okay? <laughs> um, <laughs> so... Put it this way, I was never able to go out and trick-or-treat unless I literally forcefully made my way out the house. Really? Yeah, because my mom always thought, you know, my my mom always felt like I was going to get sick because I was always a sick kid. So, like, it, you know, I would not wear the jacket and not do the things I had to do so I'd get sick all the time. Oh, my God, you were like Bubble Boy. I was, I mean, I guess so, yeah, in, in a I way. I didn't know this traumatic thing about you. Oh, yeah, like during the wintertime, I never got to go out in snow. Oh. Yeah, my mom my mom was like, no, you'll get sick. So you have to go trick-or-treating yeah. and build a snowman. I mean, I did go trick-or-treating, okay. but it was just that it wouldn't happen all the time. You had to be forceful. And then it was also bad because I, when I actually did, though, I got kind of with the wrong crowd and we would do bad things. Like towel people, you know, um, not towel, a uh, paper, uh, like, you know, toilet paper people's houses. Yeah. Well, that's more like um, mischief night. Yeah. But see, but in Queens, though, Mischief night and Halloween was the same day. Oh no, not it, here. Yeah, so we when we would go out, if the people gave us bad candy, we'd come back and use toilet paper on their house. Oh and my god, do, and you do guys bad were things. like, I guess candy vigilantes. Pretty much, yeah, we were bad. So yeah, I was kind of an ass. Did you get sick? No, no. And then, <laughs> and then, oh, and last but not least, so let's just put this into perspective here. One, I barely got to go out on Halloween. Um, when I did, I did bad things. And third, and most, um, the funny thing of all. When I came back, my dad would eat all the good candy. All well, everybody's dad did that. I'm like, come on, man! I just went out there. I got all the good stuff. I come back home and this I is did what you some do. hard labor. This is some. This is like taxation without representation here. You're right. You're just taking my candy, taking my good Reese's peanut butter cups or my awesome Butterfingers, and he would just leave me with the crappiest candy, like Milky Way. Who likes Milky Way? I don't know. And Three Musketeers. I hate those. <laughs> so that's what I would be left with. But anyway, that that was my childhood drama for Halloween. I was going to say, I'm glad that we just worked through this uh, trauma with you. And also, don't You're forget. You're healing your inner child yeah, yeah. on this podcast. I am. And also, don't forget that my birthday is on the 29th of October. Oh, so yeah. It would be, Double whammy. Yeah, it would be gifts and candy. Of course, the candy I never that I got was never good. But I'm sorry, John. That's okay. The gifts were good. One day when we have children, you'll get to enjoy trick-or-treating well now the biggest question is now do i continue the cycle of taxation without representation and take their candy when i'm an adult are you going to continue I mean, the I cycle <laughs> you know what i mean um no i will not continue the cycle i'll check their candy though make sure everything's like you know no razor blades and apples. yeah yeah exactly mm-hmm. but i won't take their good stuff that like, if actually I know they like originates it, I won't from a true crime case yeah where a father put poison in his son's pixie sticks that's crazy yeah pretty pretty messed up that is yeah anyway well, I'm glad we got through that with you. <laughs> so it seemed like, you know, Shauna was in a outfit that would make her really cold because it's really just like tights and a leotard, what a gymnast would wear. But it's really cold in northwestern Pennsylvania, especially at the end of October. So her mother said, you got to put something over that. And she put on something that would like still show the outfit off. So she just put on a pair of shorts, which I think is really funny. That is funny. Shauna gave her mother a hug and a kiss and told her that she would be leaving for a friend's house now. 
And because Lucy had a night shift at the pizza place, she said she wouldn't be seeing her until the morning. And that was the last time that Lucy would ever see her daughter alive. About two and a half hours into her shift at the pizza place, Lucy received a call from her husband, John Brown. He seemed a little nervous. He asked Lucy if Shauna should be home yet. She checked her watch and said, yes, it's 8.30 p.m. The latest Shauna was supposed to be home was like 8.15. The party was supposed to end around like 7.45. So she should definitely have been home by at least 8.15. Okay. And the reason why the party was like scheduled to end so early was because, well, I mean, that's actually pretty late for an 11-year-old, but it was a school night. So it was a Tuesday. She was about to say, Jennifer should have definitely dropped her off by now. And then it hit her like a ton of bricks. No, Jennifer wouldn't have been there to pick the girls up. That's what she had forgotten. Linda and Jennifer were away. Their family had planned a trip to Hawaii and Lucy had been meaning to find another mother that would drive Shauna home, but she'd totally forgotten because she was getting ready for work that day. And it's hard getting ready for work and then having like four kids to take care of. So she had totally forgotten to set up another ride home for Shauna. Oh, no. So you know, she's probably going to have to walk home from wherever she is. Yeah, she would have to walk home from the nursing home to her house, which is a significant walk home. It's like the other side of town. That's really bad. Damn. So Lucy called her boss and let them know that something was wrong and that she would need to finish her tables and then get home. And her boss agreed. But remember, it still is like a 20 minute ride to get back to her house. And Lucy was panicked. By the time she was able to get home, it was 10 p.m. And Shauna was still not home. The Howe family, along with John Brown, took to the streets. They began walking their gridded neighborhood, screaming Shauna's name. Hearing what was going on, other neighbors came out of their homes, and they began to join in as well. After there's no sign of her for about half an hour, they made the decision to call the police. When the police arrived at the scene, something unusual happened. Instead of the police having questions for the Howe family, they had answers. Answers? Answers. Already? Okay. On their street, about two blocks down, there had been... A reported kidnapping. Someone had called 911 earlier and said that they thought they saw a girl get kidnapped. And this quite possibly could have been Shauna. But they're unaware if this is true or not. So they tell Lucy about the potential kidnapping and they ask her for a description of Shauna to try and see if maybe her daughter had been the one that was reportedly kidnapped. And Lucy was devastated. You know, this is the last thing you expect to hear. Although it's very frustrating, parents always hear from the police. They probably ran away. They're just with their friends. But for the police to arrive after you've you called to say your daughter's missing and they have to say, well, we have a kidnapping. That's uh, the worst thing you could possibly hear. I mean, it is. I'm actually very surprised that somebody, I guess, along that street witness this take place uh, so it has to be a really brazen thing to do it must have been like late at night and that would make it hard to see some of the details that are on the street yeah definitely not getting a great look at it and i'm gonna go into what the eyewitness account was so you'll see what he saw okay the eyewitness to the crime was a 28 year old man named dan Patton. 
the Oil City Police had him in custody when Lucy called 911, and they were questioning him about the incident over and over again. According to Patton, he was walking down West 1st Street. If you remember, that's the street that Shauna lived on. And he saw a girl who matched Shauna's description walking on the other side of the street coming towards him. So if this was Shauna, it kind of makes sense because that meant she would have been walking in the direction of her home. Patton said he remembered thinking that she might be cold because it actually was really cold that night. So I went in and I looked up how cold it was at 8.30 p.m. in Oil City on that day. 42 degrees. And she had no jacket on, but she had shorts. She had shorts on. Yeah. But he remembered thinking, okay, wow, that's weird. And for our listeners around the world, I also looked this up for you guys. That's six degrees Celsius, which makes it sound a lot colder. It does. (laughs) (laughs) So it would have made sense that now this is important because they say like things like this cue your memory and make you remember what happened better. Like if if it's just like an everyday, like he's walking home like he always does, he's not really going to remember things. But if something sticks out to him, like here's this little girl walking down the street. Oh, she seems cold. And then he'll remember it better. Oh, yeah. That happens with a lot of people. Right. So here's this little girl walking in a leotard and shorts at 8.30 p.m. And yes, it's around Halloween, but it was the 27th, so he probably didn't make the connection. Oh, she's wearing her Halloween costume, especially because she's a gymnast. It's not something obviously a Halloween costume. So he just marks in his head like this seems odd. And from the location of the party to where Shauna would have been walking, it would make sense time-wise that she would have gotten that far from when the party ended to it being 8.30 by the location of where she was. As she was walking down the street, she was approaching a tall, thin man who was wearing a baseball cap and he had glasses on. And this man was on her side of the road. As she was approaching that thin man, Padden was getting to the point where he was passing them. So he was, this was all happening behind him. So he passed a little girl who was approaching this tall, thin man. So his head would have had to have been turned to see their interaction, but he'd kept walking forward, not thinking anything about it at all. So Oil City really is a safe place to be. But he said he heard a short scream and a car pull away into gear very quickly. And, like, by the time he turned around, the car was speed, speeding away. Now, did, the tall, did this tall man get out of the car and then back in? or was... He was waiting outside of his car. Now, the, I mean, for all we know, though, there could have been more than one person there. Could have been. Yeah. So when he turned back around, he said the man, the car, and the girl, all gone. Really quickly, huh? So it happened yeah. really fast. When they asked him what kind of car it was, all he could really say for certain was that the car was boxy and it was like a dark reddish color. I mean, okay. I mean, that's that's pretty decent detail. It is. I mean, I I, I hate to say this, but it is true. Like a lot of times if there is eyewitness testimony, it's very uh, hard for uh, there to be detail. And I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like a lot of the cases we've covered with eyewitness testimony, it's all been like older people. Yeah. Where like their eyes are bad or they were too far away or this You're person. definitely explaining everything to my cousin Vinny. 
I know you're right. Oh my god. Oh my god, you are you're so right. Okay, but no, but seriously though, he's 28 years old. He's not far. He's literally across the street. Yeah. You know, some people when they see this, it's like through their window on their upstairs house down Again, the street. My cousin Vinny. Yeah. It's it's you know, it's but this is very actually detailed and that person was right there when it took place. Yes, and he's calling right away. So it's not like, okay, this is something that happened years ago or weeks ago. This just happened, so he decides to call 911 and report it. And you got to think, he has to get to a house to use a landline. Yes, it's 1992. So after Patton was questioned for hours, he was free to go home. But the police are going to keep him on the list of persons of interest because that's just always the case for someone who either found the body or witnessed an event. Now, if he's telling the truth, the truth is very troubling. The area of Oil City where Shauna lived is set up like a grid system. So she was on her street and she was abducted two short intersections away from her home. From where she was taken, she would have been able to see her house because it was only 10 homes away. She was so close to safety. And from what we know from Lucy, Shauna's stepfather, John, was calling her mother asking, should Shauna be home now? Right around the same time this event was taking place. And she was supposed to have been walking through the door. That's crazy. I, you know, I do want to uh, add something here because uh, I'm, I'm thinking about the area that we're talking about. It's a really small town that not a lot of people live in. Well, it's right? ki- no, it's more like Oil City's kind of a larger area. Okay. But they live in like a small neighborhood that's set up like a grid system. But there are a significant amount of homes and people that live there. Okay. The reason why I'm saying this is because I'm thinking like, okay, well... Is it possible that whoever did this is probably from the city? And she that means most likely she's in the city. Well, people from the neighborhood know each other, but not the whole entire city. Okay. It would be impossible for everyone to know everybody. So it's so it's big then? Yes. Okay. I just want, like, I'm trying to get a scale in my mind of how big this area is. Because if it was just a small little town, that, you know, that person could be living in that town. Or this person could be taking a child from a small town into, like, the outskirts somewhere in the middle of nowhere. You know what I mean? Like- well, there are outskirts of Oil City, but because the location is so big, like, it's impossible. Like, if you live on one side of town, you really don't know the families on the other side of town. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So once Lucy had been informed that the police suspected Shauna had been taken from Patton's description, she was beside herself. Usually in these moments, the parents have no idea what happened to their children. But for Lucy, it was all the more frightening that she did know. Shauna had been kidnapped. She was desperate to go out searching for her. But the detectives that were quickly assigned to the case told her that it wasn't a good idea. They assured her that the police were doing all of the searching and that they were in the process of getting volunteers to even aid in the search. And what they needed from her was to stay home in case Shauna either came home or she was to receive a phone call. And she was confused by this, but the police told her that there might be a ransom situation and they may get a call from the kidnappers. And by this, Lucy was totally confused. They were a blue-collar family with four kids. They were living paycheck to paycheck. So even if they had a ransom, they had no way to pay it. Yeah, but that's the smartest thing to do. I mean, because... Right, to stay home and be there. Yeah. But the detectives assured her, like, if there is something like a ransom, it's something that would be covered. We would try to figure it out 
and we would be working with you here. And, you know, although they were assuring her they were going to help her with every step of the process, Lucy is fraught with worry and grief. And, I mean, she was beside herself. I mean, you can't blame her, can you? No. So Lucy called the two people she counted on most to help her in her hour of need, her two brothers, Keith and Claire. She told them, it's Shauna. We don't know where she is. Minutes later, they practically came running through the front door. The men, muscular and tough from knowing honest work their entire lives, were diminished to messes at the thought of their niece, to whom they were both very close, was missing. They promised Lucy that they would go out searching in her place while she stayed home and waited. One of the benefits of growing up in a place like Oil City, where the residents stayed despite the economic hardship of the area, is that the people know a thing or two about loyalty. And they gathered everyone they knew. And the brothers knew a lot of people. And they asked them to join in on the search. A group of just over 100 people, under the direction of Shauna's uncles, with the permission and assistance of the police department, walked the streets of Oil City until the sun came up, screaming Shauna's name. Despite their efforts, there was no sign of the little girl. After a few hours of rest, Lucy, her husband, and her brothers regrouped the following morning and went into town and began putting up missing flyers. They handed them out to everyone. And surrounding this whole case, I'm going to be describing a lot of news footage because the media really like took to this case quite quickly. And we have a lot of footage of a lot of things that went down in this investigation. I mean, it's good to have. Um, at some points, it feels extremely invasive and uncomfortable, but it does show like how emotional the community was about this happening. Oh, sure. And um, I think yeah. that was something that that's why the media was like magnetized to it. Hey, honestly, sometimes the media could do wonders for an investigation. That's very true. So Lucy can be seen desperately stopping motorists and asking them to help spread the word by taking flyers and bringing them wherever they're going. Um, she stops one man in a truck and she's just like on the verge of tears saying, you go everywhere. Can you take these with you? And everyone is trying their best to be helpful. And Lucy is just trying her best to keep it all together. The flyers gave Shauna's description and stated that the man they were looking for was white, over six feet tall, had an unkempt look to him, and had been driving a boxy 70s or 80s model vehicle that was dark red in color. That's kind of hard because I feel like all 70s or 80s vehicles were boxy looking. I mean, that's kind that of true. That was the style. Yeah, that, was, that is very true. If I could be a consultant on this case. Okay. okay a car I, consultant? No, not car consultant. Just like an investigation consultant. Okay. I would say that this is a very unique town, uh, city. Um, because it had a, it had a lot of industry, so I would if I was trying to tell the police where to search or a search party where to search, I would say I'm sure there's abandoned factories, railways, um, maybe uh, other like factory type buildings where people could be. It could be in like you know I'm sure there's trains and factories and other stuff. If they did steal uh, like ironwork and stuff like that. I mean, they would be the all. They would be all over that. Think about it. It would be a great place to like. I mean, hope. God, I, I mean, 
you want to find her alive, but if you were to find her body, you know, unfortunately, I mean, those are places where it could be. Or you might be able to find evidence in those places. The abandoned places of industry. Yeah. That I would be what I would think in a town like that. I think that's a really good Because nobody guess. would go there. Think about it. Why would you? It's abandoned. Yeah. And it's usually places where undesirable people tend to gravitate towards. Exactly. To like do things. Yeah, that would be my biggest tip. Okay. Well, maybe, hey, if any police departments are hiring, John <laughs> is um, for hire as an investigator. Well, consultant. you know, my time is limited because I like to, you know, do podcasts. And play video games. And play video games and go to work. <laughs> um, but uh, I could try to make time. So, I mean, you have a pretty impressive resume from the podcast, sure. I would say. I think so. So, Shauna's biological father, I know we were all thinking of him, Robert Howe joined the search party in the early morning hours of October 28th after he had been questioned by detectives through the night. So, they really get her biological father right away and they do intense questioning. They really wanted to rule him out as a suspect before they allowed him to be part of the investigation. And this makes sense. Divorced parents, a lot of kidnappings happen because of custody disagreements between parents. But Shauna's father was ruled out quite quickly because he and Lucy never had a disagreement about custody. In fact, he always remained close with his kids. And when the couple split, he decided to stay in close to Oil City because he wanted to maintain as much normalcy in the children's lives as possible and there was no bad blood between him or Lucy. And on top of that, he had an alibi. So the detectives really came to the conclusion that it wasn't Shauna's biological father, Robert. And another thing they had in play was the fact that Dan Patton had seen someone who matched Shauna's description get abducted. So they were not necessarily, they really thought they had an abduction on their hands here. But they wanted to rule out the fact that Robert was involved in a potential abduction. Right. Because it has yeah. happened before that way. Whether it be himself doing it or hiring someone to do it. Correct. Yeah. But he was ruled out very quickly because there was no dispute with custody of the children. Everything was working smoothly. And there were four children involved in this um, divorce, basically. So why would he only take one child? I mean, it makes sense. Right. So during press conferences, Shauna's parents begged for the safe return of their daughter. Lucy spoke about feeling very boxed in during this time. She didn't know what to do with herself because I'm sure if it was up to her, she'd be breaking down every door in town. But she had to wait. And the Howes have said that they also will be forever grateful for the outpouring of support from their community and how the town really rose up and searched for Shauna and tried to help the family in any way possible. And, you know, during that time, they were all united and the family felt that and they felt the support. So that's something they, they are still grateful for to this day. Two days into the search on October 29th, your birthday. My birthday. A man who was unable to help with the search the previous day decided that he would help this day. So he was searching on Sandy Creek Trail, one of the designated search areas by John. What? An old abandoned train bridge. Really? Yes. 
As soon as you said it, I was like, what the hell? I mean, I knew there had to be a train if there was iron, or like iron factories and right. stuff. So this is an um, a street, like a road that's off an old abandoned train bridge. And kind of off the side of the road by an embankment, he found the the bodysuit, the leotard. That she was wearing. Oh, her Halloween costume. Yes, her Halloween costume. So it's turquoise and it had the, the thin black stripes. The police were called by the searcher and it was part of a search party. Like this guy wasn't going out solo. And they bagged the bodysuit as evidence. The news quickly spread to Lucy and Robert, Shauna's parents, and they, along with members of their family, rushed to the scene to continue the search. So... When they found the bodysuit, everyone searched the area surrounding where the bodysuit was found because they thought maybe we'll find more evidence or potentially her. That's really a bad sign, too, because, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's what she was wearing. So it's kind of like, OK, well, where is she and what took place? Correct. Like I, I, I'm like my mind already goes to the worst possible outcome right now. Yeah. And I think they were trying really hard for their minds not to go to that outcome. Yeah. Shauna's stepfather confirmed that the bodysuit had been Shauna's. It was what she was wearing. The police and the family searched the entire area thoroughly. At this point in the investigation, the chief of police took complete control of the case. Because Oil City did not have the capability to do DNA testing, they just didn't have the labs for it yet because it's 1992, uh, the chief personally reached out to the Erie, Pennsylvania Police Department and asked if they could do the testing there and if they could put a rush on it. As the closest police department that had DNA testing capabilities, the Erie Police Department chose to do so. They agreed to it. And it was determined within a day that semen had been detected on the bodysuit and they were able to pull a DNA profile. So this... Um, was very difficult news to tell the family. The following day, October 30th, the day before Halloween, a local man named David Love joined the search. He knew from what the media was reporting where portion of Shauna's Halloween costume had been found, so he decided to search the surrounding area. He made the choice to go searching on his own, as he was familiar with the area because he had lived there at one point, but he no longer did. So what are your thoughts on this? It's one person? He's it's just going just on, one on his own. Per- yeah. See, it's kind of weird, right? Because we've seen bad things happen because sometimes the people that do this on their own, and if he's going to actually find something right now, that would be suspect, I feel like. Right. But I feel like you would have to do more of a deep dive on whoever finds something because maybe it's just an eager guy in town who just wants to help, or it could be the guy that literally freaking committed it. So it's like it's too early to tell. But if he does find something, if that's what your next thing is going to be, I would say that there needs to be a red flag and he automatically will be a person of interest. If they're if the girl's father was a person of interest or someone that they needed to figure out if he was guilty or not. Right. Not guilty. You know what I mean? A a suspect or not. Then surely the guy who finds the possibility maybe of her body would definitely be that. So I agree. Yeah, I I feel like it's a. Kind of like a damned if you do, damned if you don't thing. Because volunteers are so wonderful when it comes to search parties. Um, this guy's a little different, though, because he's choosing to go off on his own completely. 
But then now if you find something and you're so low, well, now you're a suspect. Yeah, like it's it's almost like you're getting in over your head and you probably shouldn't be by yourself. And we do know that sometimes killers do get involved in the investigation through search parties or attending vigils. So it's interesting. It's just putting your it's just like kind of putting a target on your back that's unnecessary. Right. But then we need these people to search. Well, that's true, too. So it, it really is a double edged sword, right? Yeah. You want to help, but you don't want to like you don't want to be the guy. Yeah. You don't want to be the, the person that, you know. You know, is guilt? Uh, they might be the one that did this because yes. now uh, this everyone in the neighborhood is gonna be like, "Oh, did you hear? Oh, yeah, William over there. He, uh, he was over. Uh, he found the body, and uh, he probably did it." And now uh, the whole town's talking like a bunch of old ladies. That is exactly what happens, and it's also what the police believe too. I mean, trust me, I had a lot of neighbors in Queens that were. Oh my God, they were the mayor of the town. Yes. Like well, little, I feel every town has little that. old Italian women that just like love to talk <laughs> over some tea and coffee or whatever. Who doesn't? That's true. So David had also heard from talk around Oil City that the day before the area of the old abandoned train track was searched from Rockland Road and Shauna's bodysuit had been found off of Rockland Road. So that's where the leotard was found. So basically people started from where the bodysuit was found and then spread outward. So that meant that they approached the train bridge from the east. That's the direction that the road was in where the bodysuit was found. David Love knew that meant that sometimes there's difficult areas to see if the train bridge is only approached from the east. So he approaches from the west side of the bridge. Okay. Once he gets to the railroad bridge, he was a little nervous about the stability of it all. Um, although there is cement surrounding like the holdings of it and the embankment that goes down from the bridge, the actual bridge itself is an old wooden bridge All right, so with it has... no rails. It's really uh, high up. Okay. There's a creek at the bottom. So with a lot of rocks. So he was nervous about the stability. So he wanted to get a better look at the structure to determine if it was safe to walk across. Now, the structure of the bridge, completely cement, like I said, and below was a steady ramp that led to a shallow creek filled with large boulders and rocks. He peered over the side of the higher embankment, and he was just really trying to look to see how he could get down further to check the bridge from underneath. And when he peered over the side, that's when he found the body of 11-year-old Shauna Howe. Ugh. That is, I mean, hey, I mean, this is a true crime podcast, but I hate always when we find victims. I know. It, that sucks, especially a girl, a little girl, you know, just it's a kid. So sad. So he didn't approach the body. He went right to the nearest phone that he could find, and he called the police to inform them. Detectives with the Oil City Police Department were very careful with Lucy. She was fragile at the moment, and they didn't want to distress her any further. So they approached Shauna's uncles and let them know that the body of the little girl had been found and they wanted to know if they would be the ones who would identify her because they didn't want Lucy to have to go there. They did yeah. the same thing with the bodysuit. They asked the stepfather. Okay. Keith and Claire approached the train bridge with what I'm sure was a rush of emotions. Keith looked over the embankment first and Claire would later reflect that from his brother's reaction, he knew that it had to be Shauna. 
Now, the media, like I said before, really had a grip on this case. There's so many factors that made it newsworthy. A young girl was kidnapped. It was seen by an eyewitness days before Halloween. The girl was wearing her Halloween costume. So the second it seemed like there were any advancements in the case, the media showed up within minutes. Word had gotten out that a body had been found. So many affiliate stations were waiting at the police barricade. And in what seemed like one of the most intimate, heart-wrenching moments a family could have, the cameras were there. And it's so sad, uncomfortable to watch. Like, you feel like you shouldn't be there. But Shauna's uncles, after seeing their niece's, like, half-naked dead body, were walking back to their car um, with police escorts around them. And these grown, tough, like burly men were sobbing uncontrollably. And as they approached, like two friends meet them and they hug for a long time. And all four men are just sobbing. And finally they break apart and they go to walk back to their car and one of the friends like kind of like yells at the cameraman like gets in his face and is like like get the fuck out of here like what are you doing and that's where i say that's the bad part yeah of you know the news you know like they need to report but at the same time don't be invasive like yeah when you're too invasive like that i mean you're little they literally just found her body they just yeah they just had to id it yeah they had to see her there like that yep yeah um so obviously no no statement had to be made that was seen by the public and everyone knew like it was her right so now it was time to tell lucy that the search for shauna had ended the fbi had always been involved like kind of in the periphery of the case because it was the abduction of an 11 year old child and now was a brutal murder It was the female FBI agent that first began to walk up the steps. Before she could even get to the door, Lucy opened it expectantly. She told her that a body had been found. She brought Lucy inside and made sure she was sitting down. Soon after, Keith and Claire came into the house. Her brother Keith fell into her lap and began to sob. It's her, sis, he said. It's Shauna. Lucy was in denial at first that it was her, but they explained that, no, like, it had been Shauna. We saw her, and that's when it all began to sink in for Lucy. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to believe that, you know, as, as a parent or as a, uh, as a fam- other family member. You don't want to believe that a little, uh, your little kid in your family completely, I mean, <laughs> that there's no shot, that you know, that she's. That she's she, dead. Yeah. Yeah, she's not coming back. At the same time, the scene was being processed as quickly as possible. They wanted to do so before the helicopters got there or the sunset. A hair was found on Shauna's clothes, which were found near her body. There was no obvious sign of injury besides a few bruises. They would need to do an autopsy report to tell them everything, Plus, they didn't move the body too much because they didn't want to mess up any evidence. And they had to quickly perform this autopsy because they wanted to do a rape kit, especially because semen had been found on the bodysuit. 
according to Shauna Howe's autopsy report, there was physical evidence, like traumatic evidence, that a sexual assault had occurred and semen was found within her body. The semen found in the autopsy was a match for the semen sample that was found on the bodysuit, so it was from the same person. It was determined that the victim died of blunt force trauma to the chest and head. So injuries of this force were most likely sustained from a fall from the train bridge. Okay. And then the hair was sent out for DNA testing, and it was determined that the hair had a different DNA profile than the semen. Okay, so there must be another person involved. Yeah. Okay, I mean that's a, I mean that's really that's a good piece of evidence right there. The fact that now you know that there must be more than one person involved. But it's hard to also determine that because, I mean, we're talking about DNA in its infancy. So, like, a hair could have been from anybody. I mean, that's true. That's true. I don't know. It could have been, you know, anyone's hair. But I I feel like whoever is behind this is smart enough to know to go drop, like, to bring her there because no one would look there. Which makes me think, could this have happened like, did the sexual assault happen elsewhere, and then this person brought her to the 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 abandoned train tra- uh, the train track? And That's then what it seemed maybe like happened. Dr- you know, threw her off. You know, maybe. I mean, maybe that maybe there is more than one. I don't know. That's and maybe just a- had forgotten the um, forgotten the one piece of clothing, and it was something that was thrown out a car or something. Or he just, or he, yeah, or he just thought no one's gonna come over here anyway. I'll just. Toss it over here. No one's going to see it. Right. Yeah. So besides the obvious question of who did this to this poor little girl, the detectives and now FBI agents working the case had one thing that was bothering them about the discovery of the body. Well, kind of two things. Okay. Where Shauna's body was found had been searched the day before. Because remember, they found the leotard on the side of the road. And then they went to go, they searched the area. Oh, I didn't know if they went. Yeah, but the way it was, uh, well, I'll just say the way that you explained it with the, coming from the other side, or the yeah. west side of the, underneath the bridge or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, are you sure that like they didn't, that they, maybe they didn't see all everything underneath? Well, according to the records, the whole area of the embankment underneath the train bridge had been searched. The only thing I could think of is the stability of the bridge was brought into question. So maybe people didn't want to Right, they stayed away from it in certain areas. Like they didn't want to have to pass it or go completely down into it. It's possible. So it was lazy searching. It's possible. Or they were thinking, was somebody involved in the search that had committed the crime, said they searched the area and came back and said nothing was there? Or maybe they knew about the search. Or the person, like, she was alive until that day. Okay. And they had just killed her. Okay. I mean, that's a possibility. So there's a lot of things that they're going through their mind. But the thing they wanted to take a look at first, like you said, was David Love, the guy who found the body. Okay. At first, they're grateful that he found the body. But then they start to question why he was there. Love lived in the town of Tyanesta, which is about 20 miles away. So why would he come all the way out here to do this search and do it on his own? They put a tail on him to see if he does anything suspicious. 
And finally, they asked for a blood sample to try and match him to the semen sample or hair found on Shauna's clothes. It wasn't a match. And after following him, there was nothing found suspicious about him. He was just someone who wanted to help. Okay. You know what I'm surprised they, they didn't do? Uh, or maybe they did. But um, what like how about the description of the vehicle? Could, you know, they could have checked the te- uh, the city for a- any vehicle that matched that kind of description. A red boxy looking car. Uh, was it a car or a van or what? It, you just said it was like a red car. It was it was just described as a reddish boxy vehicle. Oh, vehicle. Okay. So it wasn't described as whether it was like a Jeep, a truck, a car. That wasn't clarified ah. in any description that I could find. All right. So with a child rapist and murder on the loose... City officials of Oil City made the very difficult call to cancel Halloween that year. They didn't want kids trick-or-treating, running around town, when they just had an abduction happen in front of a witness. The town, shocked and horrified at what had happened to Shauna, understood and wanted to protect their children as well. I mean, I think that's the best call that you could oh, make. Oh, yeah. I wouldn't let my kids I mean, get if one kid got kidnapped, I mean, there's a possibility others could go missing as well. It was a very brazen thing that happened. Instead of trick-or-treating that day um, on Halloween, in a solemn display of support for the family, hundreds of members of the community retraced Shauna's steps that night from the nursing home to where she had been kidnapped. And they did so with candles. So it was like a candlelight vigil, but also a walk of remembrance. From the footage that I saw of the night, it was just highly emotional. And it was like an outpouring from the community of understanding and grief. And and basically the community saying to the Howe Brown family, like, we stand with you. They wanted to remember Shauna, but they also wanted to let the killer know that they would be caught and that the killer, whoever he was, wasn't going to scare the people of Oil City. But the reality was that he did scare the people of Oil City. Kids were no longer playing outside as their parents feared what could happen. Three days after the vigil on November 2nd, services were held for Shauna Howe. Her mother chose to have an open casket viewing with a veil covering her daughter's face and body. At this point in the investigation, the only other suspect they had was Dan Patton, the eyewitness of the attack. The FBI agents working the case questioned him, and they did so brutally. They wanted to scare him. But Patton stuck to his story and agreed to submit a DNA sample so he could be ruled out. He, just like Love, was not a match for the semen or hair sample. It wasn't him. Now, at this time, CODIS, or the Combined DNA Index System, was in its infancy as it had started in 1990. And it wouldn't be until 1994, with the passing of the DNA Identification Act, that states had to submit samples into the system. So, the agents and detectives working Shauna's case didn't have the ability to test it against anything. They worked to test as much DNA as they could. They tested the DNA of everyone in the family and anyone within the community who they thought could be a suspect. And a lot of people even volunteered to give DNA samples to be ruled out. 
I mean, that's really nice of the community. They, I mean, they don't need to do that either, you know? No. But soon law enforcement was contacted by a citizen of Oil City. He said that people in town were talking about the description that Dan Patton had given of the man standing on the street when Shauna had been kidnapped. And this description sounded a lot like a man in town by the name of Ted Walker. Walker worked at a pizza place in town and was known for being a little too talkative with young boys and girls that came into the shop. He would give them hugs and just gave everyone the wrong vibes. Okay. I think we've all kind of known this person that the kids always found really creepy, but like he's never like done too much out of line. So you can't really do anything yet, but it's just the guy you don't want to be alone with. Okay. That's, I mean, that's fair. I mean, it's something to look into. Yes. So of course, when the description got around town, he was the first person that everyone had thought of. And this guy thought the police should know about it. When the detectives looked into it, they can't help but think that the 33-year-old Walker does look a lot like the description. And he drove a red car. Ooh, is it boxy? It's boxy. (laughs) They're all boxy. They speak to him and ask him if he knew anything about the kidnapping. He seemed nervous but denied knowing anything. When they asked for a DNA sample, he gave it with no problem. And after a few days, they got the results back. Ted Walker was not a match. Not a match. Not a match. Wow. I mean, you know, that was so promising, though. That was really promising. After there was determined to be no match with Ted Walker, the case was at a standstill. They had questioned and tested everyone that could be a suspect. And time passed. But the community never forgot, especially when October rolled around. Instead of a childhood celebration, the town was reminded that a killer was still out there and that there are really real things to be afraid of in this world. The town officials also made their choice to continue the ban on trick-or-treating past 4 p.m. in Oil City. And that also served as another somber reminder of what happened to Shauna Howe. In 1995, funds had been allocated to put new resources into cold cases that had been accumulated in the town. And of course, this meant the reopening of Shauna's case. Three years had passed, but the family found it hard to move on. The wounds were still fresh. But wanting to help catch Shauna's killer, they did everything they could to assist the detectives in their rework of the case. By this time, Lucy had moved to North Carolina because she couldn't take living in the town where her daughter was murdered and wondering if everyone she came across could be the man who did it. They met with Lucy and went over all of the files that were collected. They did additional sampling and they poured over the brutal details of the case. And this took a significant amount of time to do. Plus they had to do it while also working other cases. Right. Okay. So, We're not going to see big breaks in this reworking of the Shauna Howe case until around 2002. Wow. That's that's pretty long time. It takes a long time. There's also a lot of unsolved cases, cold cases. Uh, The only thing I have a question about here is, you know how, like, they investigated, um, like, the person who found her body and other people that might have been suspects? Mm -hmm. Did they really grill this guy that met the description and the vehicle's description? Did they really, like 
try to break him to see if he knew anything? No, they didn't. And they they thought, well, we asked we asked for the DNA sample. If it doesn't match <sighs> the hair yeah. or the semen, I, what I just, were they supposed to do? I know, I know. I just feel like I feel like that's not every stone unturned. I agree with you. You know, like like I understand like DNA would rule out someone completely. I get that. But if this guy is 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 rubbing people the wrong way a little bit and matches the description matches the description physically and the car like that's weird. I think that there might be more to this. I cuz I'm still going on this my my red flag with the car because there could have been more than one person. What if he did not what if this what if this weird creepy guy didn't um like rape her and, and and kill her but what if he abducted her and the other person did the other thing maybe he might know things that could potentially lead to another person like right. i just feel like in this ta- in this city i feel like everyone's doing such a good job so why not just leave every not leave one stone unturned like why not go as hard as him as yes. you did on Dan Patton exactly. and the father and David Love exactly you have the entire city doing an amazing job you have the uncles having these crazy search parties the police department is getting funding the uh, and support and uh, from the fbi and other counties police departments you have yeah. dna testing um you know you know you are interrogating but are you doing it enough they didn't even interrogate this guy that's that's acting like a little bit of a weirdo guy yeah. now i'm not now it also kind of does uh, blur that line a little bit of just because somebody might look a little sus doesn't mean that they're the ones that did it Right. But I still would at least talk to this guy and maybe tail this guy. If they tailed a guy that found the body, tail the guy that everyone thinks that matches the description. I think that's a good I think that's a good idea. So I think that that's something that was not done. They're pouring resources into the wrong suspects. Correct. I okay. think that that should totally have been done. That's your That's my stance on stance, it. Stance red flag whole thing all in one. Okay. I With like a little it. bow on it. Nice. Yeah. So as they were poring over the brutal details, one thing popped out at them after okay. they, they're doing like, you know, I mean, I don't know how many times they read these case files, but something stood out. And I think it goes to what you kind of just said. According to the eyewitness testimony of Dan Patton, he said that he saw her, then turned away, saw a scream, boom, gone. So like that was really quick. And the police didn't really mention this in any of their notes, but these new detectives who were had a fresh set of eyes on it said, well, this is way too quick to be one person. So maybe there's multiple people involved in the kidnapping for it to have happened so smoothly. And I don't know why the police back in 1992 didn't come to that conclusion from the beginning when the hair sample didn't meet match the the semen sample i I agree i think they might have had horse blinders on on this guy's testimony of what he witnessed and only what he witnessed yeah but we're gonna get to the hair semen sample thing because i think there is a reason why okay they didn't but we'll, we'll get there sure so they figured okay multiple people involved in this what could we do to try to figure out who did it if there's multiple people involved so they figured they would search for people who were involved in assaults that involved multiple people from around the area during the time period of the murder. And they very quickly came upon the name of two brothers. 
Okay. Timothy and James O'Brien. They were known around town as Timmy and Jimmy. On original choices from their parents. <laughs> and they did not have the best reputation. Okay. The chief of police knew the O'Brien brothers well. They had been in trouble with the law ever since they were kids. According to their record, something interesting happened to them. After Shauna's murder, their criminality snowballed into an avalanche, basically. And in 1995, they attempted to abduct a 22-year-old woman while she was walking home from a bar. They tried to put her in the trunk of their vehicle, but she was able to get away. Now, because of the similarity of both cases, the O'Brien brothers quickly became suspects in this new investigation into the Shauna Howe murder. And, you know, this is something and the reason why, because obviously over time we've learned a little bit more about criminals. And sometimes when you have criminals who have a particular M.O., they choose to pick victims at first that are extremely vulnerable and easy to do things with. And then they work up towards the more difficult victims. Like kidnapping an 11 year old girl is going to be easier than kidnapping a 22 year old woman. So was that practice for what they wanted and intended to do? We know that happens. It also inflates their sadistic ego because if they could do this, if they can get away with that, they might be able to escalate and actually get away with it on someone older or, you know, or however they want to go about it. If they could do it once, they're going to do it again. Exactly. And it would kind of make sense that the police earlier, because DNA was in its infancy, and some things do kind of um, get hard to determine, but if they were brothers, the samples would be similar between the semen and of the, yeah. The semen and the hair. Just like, you know, like when they found the Golden State Killer, they found it through DNA of somebody else. Yes, correct. So it would it would make sense different, but similar. Similar profiles. Right. So the next reasonable step would be to go back and see if the O'Brien brothers had ever been questioned or considered suspects back in 1992. After a quick scan of the suspect list, it was seen that the brothers had been considered suspects at the time because of their criminal history. Okay. However, they were quickly cleared because they had been arrested shortly before the abduction and they were in jail. And there's clear record of that, that they were in prison? Well, John, the detectives weren't going to give up that easy. They wanted to follow up and make sure every I was dotted and T crossed. So they looked through the court documentation regarding the O'Brien brothers. And they made a shocking discovery. Yes, they had been arrested. But on October 27th, the brothers had made bail. So are you telling me right now that these guys were arrested, I guess, what was it, awaiting trial, and then they they posted bail? They were being held, yeah, because they were awaiting trial, so they were allowed to be out on bail. They were arrested <laughs> on the 25th. So they posted bail. And now they were out and about. So now they, they are not free. cleared suspects. Now they are not cleared suspects. No. And, you know, this is a bit troublesome for the current detectives that are working the case. Because just like you said, why didn't they go harder with Ted Walker? The detectives are thinking this here. Why didn't they just look down the document? Because what it seemed like was the previous detectives 
only saw the top of the paper that said they were arrested on the 25th and they remained in jail until they made bail. But they didn't go to the bottom of the page that said bail was made on October 27th. Right. If they, they didn't just, even go to the bottom of the document. So if they just investigated this a slightly further, they would have realized that those two brothers were out and about yeah. in the town. Yes. And and you wouldn't have it would have been able to follow up on a suspect because now they have no alibi. Yep. That's I mean, that is an oversight, a very large oversight. Uh, yeah. There's there's really no other way to put it. I mean, I understand that they did the best they could, but little things like all these little details in investigations matter. I mean, I think everyone that listens to a podcast that covers true crime, you know that it's every it's all in the small details, right? That get overlooked that could solve cases. Exactly. And I know even though we are looking at it and- after the fact, and it might be a little easier, sometimes, you know. It, it just plays a very big role in how the rest of the case goes years and years after the fact. Well, that's why it, I always think it's good to have fresh eyes on a case because these detectives are solving this crime with all of the information the previous detectives had. I know. That kind of uh, makes you feel like, well, what were they doing? Yeah. Well, right? sometimes you get so entrenched in a case that you kind of can't get out of it. And you can't take a step back and take a look into it, yeah, you know. And that's exactly just, it's what happens. So, okay, what did we learn? Cold case, uh, having money for cold cases, very important. Very important. Yeah. So a warrant is issued for the DNA collection from Timmy and Jimmy, and James O'Brien's DNA is a match for the semen sample retrieved from the vaginal swab of Shauna Howe and her bodysuit that was found on the side of the road. Timothy O'Brien's DNA was a match for the hair found on Shauna's clothing. They had them. And they didn't even have to go far to find them. Because the brothers were already in jail. Timothy was in jail for the sexual assault of a child. And Jim had been found guilty on another attempted kidnapping charge. These guys are unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad they're locked up already. But geez, this is insane. Yeah. But the detectives were not satisfied with just the O'Brien brothers. They wanted to know who the tall guy was with them. So they reached out to and questioned all of the known associates of the O'Brien brothers. More than one of them said that at the time, the brothers were staying in a flop house. A house in a very remote area on the outskirts of town. Like you said. (laughs) I was like, as you're talking and you're saying these things, I'm like, Jesus, he's figuring it out already. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm and sorry. You said, wow. you said right away that it was more than one person to look by like an abandoned train track and that they're, he, they're on the outskirts of town. Well, I said abandoned industry and like yeah. train and an old train, like train station. Right, but that's what. But yeah, that's crazy, actually. good. Yeah. So seriously, wow. guys, John is available for his investigative services. We could... You know, use the money to help pay off his mortgage. We would be <laughs> very happy. Oh, my gosh. Um, That's crazy. So he's staying at this flop. They're staying. Sorry. These brothers are staying on in this house in the outskirts of town. And there was this guy who, like, owned this flop house. And he was a little weird. And he seemed to want acceptance. So because of that, he let people stay at his house, kind of run amok. 
do drugs, party, drink, do whatever they wanted. And do you know who this guy was? <laughs> uh, tell me. Ted Walker. <laughs> you talk about the weird guy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. All like you said, yeah. all they had to do was push him. And yep. you called it way before you even knew about the O'Brien brothers. That's uh... If they would have just pushed Ted Walker... He most likely would have told. Listen, I, and and the reason why that was so clear to me was the best people in the world to know things are the people that live in the, these towns. They You're know right. more than the police. You're right. Because everyone talks and everyone knows each other's movements. You don't think that people walking in and out of that pizza place aren't leaving and going that guy's a fucking weirdo or you're right or why is he talking to the, why is he hugging kids what's up with that what's what's going on it's not normal behavior right so like people oh talk. i don't let my son go to that exactly yeah people in town you know in town are the best indicators of a person's character i agree with that one so at this point 10 years had passed since shauna had been abducted and murdered and the town of oil city had banned halloween This meant a family and a community would start their healing process. Ted Walker was brought in for questioning again. After years of what I assume was looking over his shoulder, Walker quickly cracked under the pressure of the detectives questioning him. So now I'm going to get into what happened to Shauna Howe on October 27, 1992, and it involves physical and sexual violence towards a child. So I just want to give you a warning before I do that. If you don't want to hear what took place, I would say you should probably fast forward about six minutes. So now, remember, this is a story through the biased perspective of Ted Walker, who has, whether he is conscious of it or not, I am sure over time in his mind, minimized the involvement that he had in this crime. We can only assume that. Walker stated that the O'Brien brothers approached him about playing a joke on the local police department because they were so upset about their recent arrest. And now Walker, wanting acceptance from these men that he, I guess, he believed were more dominant than him, is going to agree to do so. Freshly released from prison on bail, the brothers and Walker began riding around Oil City. They had seen kids walking out of a party some in Girl Scout uniforms. So they took their chances and parked on West 1st Street in hopes that a child would walk in their direction. The men were all in two separate cars. Walker was in his vehicle, and the brothers were in their Chevette. James was driving, and Timothy was in the back seat. The brothers stayed in the car, which was parked at the corner of West 1st and Reed Street. And Ted Walker stood outside of his own car, which was parked on West 1st. Okay, so before we get any further, I figured I would show you a visual on this. Oh, okay, cool. Now, I'm going to put the link for this in the show notes so people could see it too. But this is West 1st Street. Okay. And this is Reed Street. So Shauna Howe was walking down West 1st Street, and that's her house right there. Are you serious? And she was kidnapped right here. So they were parked here. See, it's kind of abandoned. It's next to a church. 
So nobody, not abandoned, but there's not a lot of things happening there. So the brothers were parked on Reed Street and Ted Walker was parked here on First Avenue. So it's kind of like, I can't explain it. Like they were next to each other, but on they like, were at a, they were at a cross street. Correct. One was on the cross street. One was actually on the main road. On the main road. So so yeah, and you know what? If the brothers were in that, let's say on that street that you're pointing to over there, okay? I mean, in 1992 at 8:30 at night, it was probably extremely desolate over there. Yeah, and it was dark. Yeah. So she could see her house and the location. So as Shauna House walking down this side of the road. Dan Patton's walking down this side of the road, and they're going in opposite directions. It's actually... Isn't I, it I, chilling to see it? No, it is, actually. Like, as you're showing me this, I'm, I'm thinking... I'm, I'm A mental picture's coming together for me of how that must have been. See how... The center of town's actually beautiful. It is beautiful. Very beautiful. But this is where she was taken, right here. It's scary. I think maybe you should do that from now on and just show us some... Uh, when I can, yeah. I try to look it yeah, up you should to do that. give myself like a viewing of it. <clears throat> yeah. But it is a little haunting. A little, I've never shown chilling. you it before. Yeah. But well, yeah, we should do that. It would be nice for also our, our listeners. listeners to just kind of see that. So yeah, let's do yeah, that. I'll have it in there for you guys. Mm-hmm. So um, from what Ted Walker said, he saw Shauna walking directly towards him. Now... If you decide to read up on this case, besides, you know, listening to this podcast, there's a lot of people out there that say that Ted Walker knew who Shauna was because his son is around the same age as Shauna and that he kidnapped his son's friend. That is untrue. The two didn't know each other. Okay. So that's something I feel like has just been kind of projected through the media. Yeah. He did not know who Shauna was, but he did assume she was a Girl Scout because earlier he had seen all of the Girl Scouts leaving the event. Right. Well, that okay. makes more sense. Also, yeah. not to mention, if you work at a pizza place in a town, you're going to see a lot of kids. You know the people. You might town. know the people. That mm-hmm. sounds more believable than that. Yeah. that I think that was just kind of like a grab you headline kind of, of course. thing. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't know if the brothers and Ted Walker had a conversation about Shauna, but Ted Walker saw her walking directly towards him. There was a man on the other side of the street. We know that that's Dan Patton, but he was a little ways up the road and didn't seem to be too, paying too much attention. As Shauna got closer, Walker approached her and asked her if she was selling any Girl Scout cookies. He said he wanted her to feel at ease, and then he grabbed her around the shoulders and brought her around to the O'Brien's car that was behind him. He handed the child to Timothy O'Brien, who was waiting in the back seat with the door open at this point. Walker ran to his own car, and they both sped off. O'Brien sped off down West 1st Street, but the brothers went further down Reed, which was why Dan Patton only saw the red car speed off. Um, you, you made a mistake there. You oh, said, sorry. Yeah, you said that the you had it flip-flopped, uh, that, the, the, that the other car left on West First Street. Okay. And then and the brothers went down Reed. Okay, okay. Yeah, no, I was right. I'm all right, maybe I wasn't paying attention. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, John, pay attention. <laughs> but because okay. Dan Patton saw the red car leaving, that yes, was Ted yes. Walker's car. Okay, okay. But she was in the Chevette going up Reed. So Got he it. he only saw one car leaving, but there was two going in opposite directions. Right. So you see how because of the way that they were parked and how you show me that visually, you could see how an eyewitness would have just thought that the, the tall man just took the girl in the in the in car the and car. sped away, but it, it actually was not. 
mm-hmm. that way at all. That's interesting. Yes. So Ted Walker said from there he went straight home. The O'Briens were intimidating men, and Ted Walker was certainly not the kind of man to stand up to anyone, which was why he ran a flop house of sorts, and the O'Briens ruled the roost there. Walker claimed that later on that night, the O'Briens returned to his house and they still had the girl with them. He thought the plan was to release the girl right away, but they carried Shauna to an upstairs bedroom and she was kicking and screaming. So now they arrive at his house with the girl still. And they carry her upstairs. Walker states that while they were in the bedroom upstairs, he heard her yelling, get off me, let me up, let me go, and crying. He said he stayed away away from it all, and sometime later, he can't be sure of how much time passed, but he heard the Chevette leave the property. He went upstairs and saw that both brothers and Shauna were not in the house. At some point, after a 12-hour window of her being missing, Shauna was taken to the railway bridge area, which is located seven miles south of Oil City, and is known to locals as Coulter's Hole. She was thrown from the trestle, or fell, while trying to get away. And we don't know what happened in those woods, right? There are some theories that maybe they forgot to throw the bodysuit away, so they did it on the side of the road, or maybe she was running away from them and she fell because the bridge, not only was it unsteady, but there was no like railings or guards. So we don't know what happened. But she died. Yeah, I mean, either way, they were directly involved in Mm -hmm. her death. So, After his confession, Ted Walker said that he wanted to say something to Lucy. Now this is Shauna's. So he's talking directly to Shauna's mother. He looked at the camera that was recording his confession and said, Lucy, I'm sorry. It was supposed to be a joke. 15 to 20 minutes is all. Nothing was supposed to happen. It was not planned this way. What the O'Briens did, I'm sorry about that. I hope you can forgive me. I'm sorry it took me so long, but they threatened to kill my son, who I love dearly. And I'm sure the O'Briens did put the pressure on Ted Walker for the rest of his, you know, time in freedom. Yeah. But he could have come to the police. He should have went to the police right after it happened when Mm -hmm. he realized, okay, there's something more nefarious happening here. 100%. I mean, but listen, there's no excuse. None. You don't kidnap a child. That's not a joke. That's not a joke. And uh, and listen, he could have called the police. The moment they left the house, he could have called with the phone in the house. He could have. He should there's, have. There's no excuse. You could have called. I mean, honestly, you could have called up as it was happening. I mean. As they were searching, as the police were talking to you and taking your DNA sample. At any time. There were so many opportunities. I understand have. that, you know, but that's always a good defense. They threatened my life and my kid. Yeah. So I don't know how much of that is actually real, but I could tell you that you had every opportunity to come forward and, and you didn't. And do the right thing. The O'Brien brothers were tried jointly in a 15-day trial that ended one day before the 13th anniversary of Shauna's abduction on October 26, 2005. Walker testified against the brothers, and the jury was shown pictures of the poor little girl's body, and they were graphic. It was clear through the pictures of her body that a brutal sexual assault had taken place. 
And the jury was shaken just as much as her uncles had been a decade prior. They found the brothers guilty of second and third degree murder, involuntary sexual intercourse, kidnapping, and conspiracy. Okay. For a victim impact statement, Lucy read a letter from her mother, Shauna's grandmother. Shauna was remembered for her blue eyes and brown hair, her love of Sunday school and the holidays, especially Halloween. She went on to read, I hope you live a long life, which you'll be as frightened as Shauna was on the night she died. I also hope you love someone in your life and you'll never be able to hold or touch or see them ever again. I know you don't care. I know you don't know us, but you also ruined your life. You're wasting your life behind bars now. You killed Shauna, but you also took your own life. And it was a difficult letter for Lucy to get through, but she did it because she read that letter for her mother. But then when it came time for her to say her own words, she couldn't get through them. She couldn't stop sobbing on the stand. So eventually she walked off and sat next to her husband and cried into his chest. At that moment, everyone in the courtroom felt the pain of the Brown Howe family. In April of 2006, during sentencing, the judge had this to say, What a horrible way for anyone to die, especially a young child. Youth activities had been restricted, even eliminated, for over a decade because of what you have done. While Shauna Howe was a member of the Girl Scouts, enriching the lives of senior citizens at a convalescent home, you were lurking in the shadows, plotting to ruin her life. You ended up taking her life. This world was a better place because of Shauna. And it will be a better and safer place without the both of you walking free ever again. The brothers were sentenced to life in prison for the murder charges, and a consecutive 10 to 20 years for the sexual assault, and a consecutive 10 to 20 years for the kidnapping. Since the sentencing, all appeal attempts had been denied. Ted Walker also received prison time for his role in the crime. He did get some reduction in sentencing because he chose to testify against the O'Brien brothers, but in the end, he was given 20 to 40 years in prison. Years after the trial, the children of Oil City came together in 2008, and they worked to return trick-or-treating back to Oil City. The law basically says that they can't trick-or-treat past 4 p.m., so they were able to basically get it pushed that they can trick-or-treat before 8 p.m. Okay. So the city relented and allowed them to do so because now at this point, um, Shauna's killers were behind bars. It wasn't right. like this killer was on the loose any longer. And they decided that maybe it was time the community start to heal from what happened. And right. the, the push to reinstate trick-or-treating back was done so in a respectful way to Shauna as a victim. I mean, I think so. Um, so, so after 16 years, the ban on Halloween had been lifted and uh, justice was restored to Shauna and the Howe family. It's really sad. It's so sad. Oh, man. You did, you did well getting through that. I, did, I, did. I know that was hard reading those impact statements. Yeah, I was like, watching you. I, they always kill me. Yeah, they do. Well, that's hard. it's heartbreaking. Yeah, but you're right. The 
I think the investigators at the beginning kind of couldn't get out of their way because there was so much pressure. But you called it right away. You're getting really good at this. <laughs> Thanks. Well, thank you. But I will say, though, that like, I, I mean, and this is putting it as nicely as I can. It was just grossly mismanaged. Yeah. On on the police's part, just to do just a little bit more digging, just a little bit more. You know, I mean, I'm glad we got it, but I, you know, think about the torture uh, to that family that they had to wait until 2000 and what two? You said it was. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, 2002. It was discovered it was the O'Brien brothers, but the child didn't happen until 06. I mean, that that's insane. Think about that. You could have you could have potentially stopped that back in 1992, 93. And, and think about what the brothers did afterwards. Right, exactly. They didn't stop. No, they didn't. So it could have also prevented other people from uh, uh, experiencing traumatic events or possible other people being uh, sexually assaulted and killed. So, like, you know, you know, you know, there's so much more than just what took place here. I mean, even though this is the most important part of the case, if they're not caught, these people are doing it elsewhere. They don't stop. And I think that's the biggest thing that we have to remember. No stone left unturned. Right, because crimes are only escalating. That's it. Good job today, John. Thanks. You too. All right. Um, that's where we're going to end the episode. But before we go, we do want to thank our new supporters on Patreon. And if you are feeling um, generous or you want more episodes of True Crime Couple, you can go over to patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. And you'll get two bonus episodes a month. And now, this Halloween, we're going to recap all of those scary movies that we got to watch. So, we want to give a big thank you to Jade West, Kimberly Quintero Lopez, Michelle Bailey, Isla Heckel, Stephanie Hansen, Melissa Foreman, Lynn Olive, Lily Burke, Anna Brooks, Jem, Dylan Hall, Alexandra Chikino, Becky Pendray, Bethany Nichols, Misty Trotter, Tony, Alexis O'Connor, Letitza Nikolai, Kay, Moglai Games, Brittany Blevins, Christian Jemlek, Judson Fife, Cynthia Wells, Kayla A., Tara Byrne, Cindy Dahlberg, Jermaine Benoit, Stephanie Ross, Beck Hibbert, Paige Goldings, Jordan Alzaharna, Madison Lowry, Nicole Hampson, Emily Michaela, Heather Bakey, Aisha Hunslow, and Suzanne. Thank you guys for contributing to Patreon, and we hope you're enjoying all the episodes. So until next time, ooh, scary stories next episode. Can't wait. So excited. <laughs> All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.